I thank uh, Mike for the prayer on my behalf. I want to thank Brent also for giving me the opportunity to speak. I'd like to thank him for this morning's lesson as well. A person of my background, not raised in the church, I find myself overcorrecting in my life, uh, going from one extreme to the other, and I think I definitely need to uh, fine-tune some moderation in my life. I want you all to think about steak for a minute. The last one that you had that was just amazing, it just left a uh, lasting impression on you. Maybe steaks aren't your thing, and I'm sorry, we'll pray for you. Um, so just think of your favorite meal instead. It was just, just awesome. Um, I'm going to guess that you told your friends about it, about it. You probably told your family. It was that good you wanted them to know so they could try it too if they had the opportunity. You know when you have a friend that's car shopping and they're looking at a lemon, but they don't know it. They're looking at, I don't know, something like a 96 Chevy or a 04 F-150 or an 08 Ford Diesel. That may mean nothing to you, but those years to me are piles, piles of junk. They've got a lot of problems. And if you knew that about those vehicles and you knew your friend was interested in buying one, you'd want to let them know to help them avoid some misery maybe down the road. Know when you have a friend that's going on a road trip and they want to do it as fast as possible, so they're planning on going down the road less traveled. You know that one that's just teeming with wildlife? deer and hogs. You're going to tell them that even though it's going to take longer, you probably ought to take the interstate because that would be a whole lot better than hitting a dozen hogs at midnight right next to the sign that says the next gas station is 90 miles. You know when the Son of God lives through and endures everything that you have to endure, has suffered everything that you've had to suffer, and dies in one of the most cruelest way possible? It's been proven to be one of the, the, most, the, most, the worst forms of capital punishment that man has ever invented. Also, you can have the opportunity to live in heaven rather than be held responsible for your sins. And you don't tell anybody about it. You don't tell anybody because you're afraid of what people may say. You're afraid of causing problems with friendships. You're afraid of offending someone. You don't feel confident in your knowledge of the Bible or your ability to effectively spread the word. Whatever the reason is, you haven't grown to the point where you're willing to spread the most important advice or knowledge that you will ever know. The way to access eternal salvation, avoid eternal damnation, and even while we are still alive on this earth, the ability to enjoy the happiness and peace that surpasses understanding that comes along with being a Christian. So I have a question. Who is responsible for your growth as a Christian? Is it the elders? A preacher? Jesus? Who makes you grow? If I get done preaching and you go home and you tell your spouse, you know I didn't get anything out of Mitchell's lesson, does that mean that I failed in helping you grow? Or if you go home and you tell your spouse, man, that was great, I really like how he used that analogy or, or did that one thing or said that one thing the way he did, that was a good lesson. Does that mean that I helped you grow? Let's look at something else that grows. Corn and cotton. We'll just stick with the farming references that Brent started this morning. That should resonate with this crowd. What farmer do you know can make their crops grow? 
All of them, right? They plant, water, fertilize. Well, what happens when it's halfway through the season and the crop doesn't look like it should? Farmer just kind of ends up scratching his head. He gets to a point that he's powerless. He's done everything he can, and the plants are just not doing what they should. Because sometimes that happens. For whatever reason, some seeds never sprout. Some plants don't grow to the size that they should, and some plants grow big and tall, but they never put out any fruit, grain, or seed. They just kind of leave you scratching your head wondering what happened. I'm probably giving a plant too much personification, but sometimes it just seems like they decided to not do what was expected of them despite the environmental circumstances being ideal. That's the same for all of us here. Sometimes we just aren't growing. Despite the preaching we hear, the ideal living situation most of us enjoy as Americans, Despite simply having the ability to read whichever the countless versions of scriptures that many people have died for so that you can have six copies scattered about your home. Despite having the freedom of religion, despite having nice church buildings with central heating and air, despite all that, sometimes we still aren't growing. If something isn't growing, it's either dead or dying. I think some of the things I listed off are part of the problem. We are too comfortable. We have been lulled into a complacency. Comfort is a drug, and once you get used to it, it becomes addicting. Give a person consistent stimulation, good food, cheap entertainment, and they will throw their ambitions right out the window. So are you comfortable today? The definition of comfort is a pleasant feeling of being relaxed and free from pain, a satisfying or enjoyable experience, to ease the grief or trouble of, to soothe, console, or reassure. It sounds like something we all want. Well, things just do not get done when we're too comfortable. Seriously, I want you to think about it. Look at all the work that has gone into inventing and building things because someone was uncomfortable. In the 1960s, we had some pretty nice cars. Well, someone decided that it was uncomfortable to hold their foot on the pedal so they invented cruise control. And fast forward to today, and now we've had someone that decided it was uncomfortable to hold the steering wheel, so they've invented computer programs to drive the vehicle for us. Really, how much lazier can we get? This is just a silly example, but there are many more things that have been invented and built by people that had a go-get-it-done attitude, so the rest of us could be more comfortable and do less and less. And we wonder why there is so much of a problem with some of our modern youth being entitled and lazy. Everything can be delivered to your doorstep these days. New clothes, furniture, you don't even have to shop anymore. Chelsea can call in a grocery pickup order to Walmart, just sit in the car and they bring it right to her. Not only that, we consider fast food, <laughs> which was already there because we, were, we didn't feel like cooking good food or going to a restaurant and having good food cooked, that we'll tolerate low to average quality food because it's fast, well, now you can have that delivered, too. I'm not trying to condemn these things, and they may all seem like an unrelated rant, but this overwhelming need to constantly attain a new level of comfort is hurting the church. It's crept into our Christianity to a point that we don't feel like studying the Bible, we don't feel like spreading the gospel, we don't feel like getting our hands dirty with other people's problems. Not only is comfort like a drug, it's a gateway drug to complacency. It's a gateway drug to entitlement, can lead to pride, 
willful ignorance, the unwillingness to change, the inability to change, and it can lead to being lukewarm in the church. Throughout the New Testament, the gospel was spread when times were the most tough. I think that may be part of the problem. It's just too easy now. In Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it reads, At that time there was a great persecution that arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. In verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to a city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. There is nothing written about the loss that these people experienced in the material sense. These people basically got run out of their hometown, and there's only one or two sentences written about it, and then they just moved on. If it was me, I would probably write a chapter book memoir about how difficult my life was because of that. Just imagine if a great persecution arose against Christians in Plainview to a point that you were scattered about the regions of Texas and New Mexico. Oh, well, Plainview isn't what it used to be, so I'm going to put my house on the market and most likely sell it for a profit. It wasn't like that. It was pack your stuff, we're leaving tonight. Saul is here with his minions, and we have to go now. As a matter of fact, my buddy from work just got hauled off and thrown in prison. So that house you worked for years to pay off, all that stuff in it that you're fond of and cherish, it's gone for good. It probably belongs to the people that were persecuting you. Now you're being treated like a common criminal, sleeping in your car or with friends or family that will let you stay with them. You know what the scriptures say then? That all those people that were scattered everywhere preached the word of God. Would you do that? Would you forget and forsake a lifetime of belongings and spread the gospel, the same gospel that got you in this mess in the first place? Or would you be on the phone with your lawyer or your congressman working up a plan to get your stuff back, or at least financial compensation? Or would you gather all your buddies up and and launch a counter-persecution on those unbelieving heathens here in Plainview? You know, that's been done for at least the last 1,600 years. Killing, conquering, foreigners, persecuting unbelievers, all in the name of Christianity. The Holy Wars, the Inquisition, World War II, even World War II was Christians killing Christians. With the exception of Japan and the Soviet Union, all of the other countries that took part in World War II were 80 to 98% self-identified Christians. You know what country was the 98% one? Nazi Germany. Let that one sink in for a minute. But my point is, the gospel is not being spread like the first century. Nowhere close. In Acts 17 and verse 6, the Jews, speaking of Christians, said that these that turn the world upside down have come here also. Are Christians turning turning the world upside down today? I want to focus on something I read. That is Christianity, by the polls, is losing 1% every year and the decline is getting faster. At the rate we're going, we're going to run out of Christians in 40 or 50 years. I say it like that because that's the goal for many people. There are many people that are looking forward to the day that we run out of Christians. Christianity has been rubbed in the dirt worse and worse every day. There are religious leaders abusing children for every one good-hearted Christian. It seems that there are 30 more using Christianity for financial gain. 
Even with some of the current events today, there are churches saying prayers over napkins and handing them out to protect people from COVID-19. Just more things that non-Christians can use to mock and discredit Christianity. So what does this have to do with individual growth? Everything. We are supposed to always work to attain the true image of Christ's church. If we are not constantly growing on an individual level, then we will never start to grow collectively again. Proverbs 21 and verse 2 that says that every way of man is right in his own eyes. For me, that's uh, basically to me, that's if you think you're in good standing religiously, it's actually an indication that you're not. <clears throat> we have to constantly look for things that need correcting and improving in our individual lives or things are not going to improve or be corrected in the church as a whole. You know, that's been really easy for me. When you started out on the bottom like I did, where nothing you were taught growing up was correct, nothing you were doing was correct, the ways you were treating people were all incorrect, it's become pretty easy for me to not be very surprised that I'm doing something wrong and be able to change fairly easily. <clears throat> it's gotten to where if I'm too comfortable, then I start getting bells and whistles going off in my head telling me that I need to stick my nose in the Bible and double-check myself. Because every way of man is right in his own eyes. And if we don't keep our noses in the scriptures, our own thoughts, ideas, and natural sinful tendencies take over, and of course complacency sets in. That's what I've been able to notice about many people. For those that did not start out the way I did, it can be very difficult for them to see and recognize the need to change, improve, and grow. These are pretty good folks. People with good parents in a good church congregation, never really done anything very bad by the world standards. It's very easy to get complacent as a Christian when by the world standards, you're a pretty good person. I'm honestly not mocking anyone at all, and I hope nobody feels that way. These are people that have a stability and experience that I do not have. I have received much more instruction and correction from these people than I could ever give in return. Proverbs 27 and 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another, which is rather fitting because I'm often accused of being very blunt. But I love the church, and I want it to be strong and growing, especially for the sake of my young children. We have a song here. <clears throat> says, roll back the curtain of memory ever now and then. Show me where you brought me from and where I could have been. Y'all have no idea what that song means to me. I often am alone with my thoughts or awake in bed at night and I get a very real chill down, down my spine to think of where I could be instead of here. So forgive me if I seem too blunt, but... I love the church and I want to do everything I can to ensure that there's always someone here and equipped to spread the gospel and help the people that are hurting in this world. We need to spread the gospel at every opportunity. That is priority number one. Not our business, not our retirement plans, not our kids' basketball games. We need the entire body equipped and capable of spreading the gospel. The entire body. Every adult here needs to be spreading the gospel. There are people here that are capable of taking the gospel to one person, and there are people that are capable of taking the gospel to hundreds. But listen to me now. There is not a single Christian here that is totally incapable of at least having a small role in facilitating a Bible study with someone. I didn't say it had to be you leading the study. 
but you at least have an active role in setting up studies with elders, evangelists, or other capable church members. We have to understand that this body has a unified endeavor in attracting people, equipping them with the world, equipping them with the word of God, and sending them back to spread it. We have to love our fellow man enough to be willing to have these conversations about eternity. Love is a commandment. It is a summary of actions that are about the well-being of others, physically and spiritually. Why do we so often fail to spread the gospel to the people we know? More often than not, that it's because we have no faith in our usefulness in the church or our abilities because we have failed to grow them or exercise them. We make excuses for not having the ability to speak to people or we can't preach or we don't know the scriptures well enough. Proverbs 16 and verse 3 says, Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. It's not vice versa. The actions have to come first. You know, my thoughts and my competence and my ability of flying an airplane is very, very low. If somehow I find myself in the cockpit of an airplane, I'm terrified that I'm going to overcorrect. I'm going to judge my distances wrong. I just, I have no faith in my ability to fly an airplane. Do you know why? Because I have no works. I have no experience. So why would I have any confidence in my ability to fly a plane if I have no works? So why would you have any confidence in your ability to effectively spread the gospel if you have no works? They call it growing pains for a reason. It's not a pleasant experience. Every single thing we have ever learned to do in this life took the willingness to take risks, admit that we don't know what we're doing, apply ourselves, and overcome. The excuses that we use to get out of church work, if we applied them to everyday life, where would you be? Would you have ever gotten a job? Would you have ever had kids? Would you have ever tried to fix the kitchen sink without any prior plumbing experience if you applied the same excuses to everyday life that we apply to church work? Would you have ever gotten a driver's license? You couldn't keep me out of a truck at 15. I'm going to learn how to drive this thing. Although some kids, have you ever taught a kid how to drive? Although some kids have more natural ability than others, it's a hair-pulling, teeth-clenching experience. But guess what? Most kids get it down in a relatively short period of time. A 15-year-old kid can kill a lot of people in a 6,000-pound truck. How many more people do you know that will be damned to hell because you don't have the possess the ability to talk to them about Jesus? If you were to get run over by a 15-year-old in a truck, would you rather it be a week before or a week after you got saved? Whether a person gets run over by a truck when they're young or they live to be 99 and die peacefully in their sleep, don't you think they deserve at least one time in their life that one person tried to spread the gospel to them? Why don't you be that person like someone was to you? I don't know about you, but getting run over by a truck a week after I, I was baptized would have been a perfect time to die. That was the most simplest time in my life. But I didn't because I wouldn't have the opportunity to preach here today. I wouldn't have the opportunity to raise children in the Lord. I wouldn't have the opportunity to be a Christian mentor to future sons-in-laws or, or maybe even spread the gospel to them similar to what was done for me. It should get us excited to think of who we could meet tomorrow and have a conversation about Jesus with. Unfortunately, hindsight is 2020, and I can think of many opportunities that I let the Lord down. I get home at the end of the day just thinking to myself, why? Why couldn't I just speak up and reach out to that person? 
Why wasn't I brave enough to ask if I could sit down with that person at the restaurant that already had an open Bible? Why did I allow myself to think that I was in too much of a hurry to turn my truck around and give that person a ride? A situation where I would have total control of the conversation and could have steered it toward the gospel. Or probably the worst one. How can I be friends with a person for years and not invite them to church because I think I already know what their answer is? 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. That's the New King James Version. Another translation says, Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. Whether the time is favorable or not. If you're in the habit of looking for and making excuses, the time will never be favorable. But if you're in the habit of the real-life application of this verse, then nearly every time is favorable. Not only that, but exciting and something to be eager for. An opportunity to help someone with both earthly problems and discuss and address where we're planning on spending the next five to five billion years if we're even going to take count. My challenge for you today is to learn to love. I really believe that that is the growth we all need. Love is a commandment. It is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. So like I said before, it's the summary of actions that are about the well-being of others. That's the challenge. Learn to love others tomorrow at least a little bit better than you did yesterday. Facilitate growth. One step at a time is all that's asked of anyone. The first step is to believe that Jesus lived and died for you. Confess that you believe that and be baptized for the remission of your sins. John 3, starting in verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And Mark 16, verse 16, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. If you've not been baptized, you need to. If you're not sure that you need to or don't fully understand what baptism is about, then you need to study the scriptures. I would be very glad to study with anyone here, and I know many more people that are much more knowledgeable than myself. They're always eager to study the Word of God. If you have been baptized, then it's like I've been saying this whole time, you need to be growing. You have to constantly take steps forward so you can help others find the way to God, like someone helped you. Again, I challenge you to grow. Expect and embrace growing pains. A little over a year ago, I went uh, door knocking with the evangelist Timothy Fleming. And I was just mainly doing the driving. Uh, he was doing all the talking, but towards the end of the day, one of the ha last houses we went to, he really pressured me to do the talking. And so I went and I knocked on the door, and the guy answered the door, and I said, Hi, my name is uh, Mitchell Price, and this is a friend of mine, and we're from the Church of Christ. At that moment, I was so uncomfortable and nervous that I had forgotten Timothy's name. That's a growing pain. Fortunately, it's a funny one. But sometimes they aren't funny. Sometimes people get mad when you talk about God. Sometimes it strains relationships. Those are growing pains that we have to endure as well. You owe it to every single person you know to talk to them at least once about Jesus. If you talk to 300 people and only one person obeys the gospel, believe me, it's worth it. 
That one person may be like Peter in Acts chapter 2 and spread the gospel so effectively that 3,000 souls are baptized in one day. Even if it just ends with that one single person in your entire life that you've ever talked to, that one person is the only one that obeyed the gospel call to salvation. That is that one person's eternity. That is there forever. What better thing could we do in this life than having a hand or a role in where someone spends eternity? So one final time today, I will annoy you with the challenge to grow. Talk to that person in the back of your mind. Talk to them about Jesus. Take 30 minutes out of your day to study the Bible and pray. If you're already doing that, take 30 more minutes. Make it an hour and apply the things that you're reading in your life. If you're failing at something, if something's sinful, take the time to address it and overcome it. Don't just tolerate it and keep repeating it. Study the scriptures. Get with some of the brethren here to help you fix the issues in your life that are preventing you from being the Christian and the evangelist that you need to be. If there's anyone here that needs baptism, if there's anyone that needs the prayers of the church, if there's anyone that just wants to study the scriptures, please come forward and stand or sit on the front seat as we sing.